0: So I've built a pillow fort all around my desk to help with acoustics.
1: Wow, you're really dedicated to this podcast. Yes, I am.
0: I am. I take it very seriously. And that was my NPR voice. I'm also working on that.
1: I probably need to work on mine, but we'll evolve and outline my NPR voice.
0: That was pretty good, actually. Welcome back to TFC Connections. I'm your host, Nicole Clenney, the Sustainability and Partnerships Strategy Manager at The Fashion Connection. And I'm co-hosting today's episode with our board president, Gabrielle Clary. Hi, Gabby. Hi, Nicole. It's great to be back. It's great to have you. And we are joined today by two incredible women who are making positive impacts across the domestic apparel manufacturing landscape. First, we have Tara Banerjee, who leads the research and strategic partnerships for the Garment Worker Center in Los Angeles, a worker-led organization that fights to end sweatshops, ensure fair wages, and improve working conditions for the tens of thousands of garment workers in Los Angeles. We are also joined by Jennifer Guarino, president, CEO, and co-founder of Isaac, the Industrial Sewing and Innovation Center in Detroit, which is dedicated to creating better lives through better industry via worker empowerment, training, and skill building. Thank you both so much for being here today to have this important conversation about the current state of manufacturing. I am really looking forward to going over Campaign and policy updates, community and cultural sustainability. We, I'm sure, have so much to talk about. But before we dive in, I always love to establish a little background and learn more about your journey. So, why don't we start with Nain Tara? Tell us about yourself and your journey.
2: Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's really an honor to be here and in conversation with you both and with Jennifer. Um, I'm so glad that we're reconnecting here. Um, so um my background, you know, I really came from a traditional fashion background. I studied fashion design as an undergrad, but very early on in my career, even as an intern, I was pretty disillusioned with the industry. I found it to be pretty exploitative in various ways, um, you know, in various levels. Um, and so um I had a couple of jobs in New York where I lived immediately after graduating and Um, started my own business making and tailoring garments when I realized my real passion was for sewing itself, not so much for the other aspects of the industry. Um, And I was able to build a business called the Williamsburg Seamster, which I had and ran for 13 years um, and really focused on extending the life cycle of garments, helping people get garments to fit them so that they could keep them out of a landfill longer, Um, And it really kind of grew with the movement um, that I think we see really strongly now, but for thrifted clothing, vintage clothing, um, upcycled garments. And then I did transition to do a lot more bridal tailoring so that I could go to grad school to study labor rights in the garment industry. That gave me a little bit more control over my schedule. Um, And in grad school, um, I was able to travel to Bangladesh um, about a year and a half after Rana Plaza collapsed. Um, and see and meet with garment workers and factory owners there and really understand some of the challenges they were facing. Um, and interestingly, in my studies, I started to see a lot of connections between Bangladesh's subcontracting sector and Los Angeles's garment industry. Um, and I learned about the Garment Worker Center at that time, and it basically moved my life to Los Angeles. It reached out to GWC and just asked, what can I do? What, how can I work with you? So I was really fortunate at the time, you know, GWC was founded in 2001 and really grew out of a lot of the advocacy that came after the Thai El Monte slavery incident in which um, uh, 70 or more Thai immigrants were found uh, to be trafficked and working in sweatshops and townhouses in El Monte, um, producing garments for big brands like Guess and Bibi. Um, in 1995, and all of the organizing from the community after that made made it very clear that actually garment workers needed dedicated support and resources. And so Garment Worker Center um, really grew out of that. We focus on policy advocacy, direct action, and base building to grow worker power and to lead the anti sweatshop movement here in Los Angeles. When I started volunteering, I was um, facilitating and teaching um, creative um, and sewing and pattern making classes for our members as an empowerment and recruitment tool. Um, and I got to know our members um, uh, that way, which was really wonderful. I got to learn a little bit more about um, the challenges they face and also the opportunities that they create for themselves and for one another. Um, and um, and then that, uh, the volunteer position turned into um, consulting and now into my full-time position where I've been since 2020 um, leading industry research and strategy for GWC, really on our campaigns team, which includes legislative campaigns, local policy campaigns, and um and now also workforce development. Wow.
0: Well, thank you so much, Nayantara, for sharing your background and the work that you and GWC do to advocate for exploited workers Jennifer, I know Isaac is also a people-focused organization advocating for change and innovation. Tell us about that and your journey.
3: Well, first, thank you again uh, for including us in this conversation. That's such an important one. And I've been around for many decades in this industry and started, i on the creative side of things. Uh, so an illustrator and then a designer. Um, and and I, I basically got bored with every position because I wanted to know how all of it worked. And so I ended up living in almost every department or division that you could imagine um, inside of our fashion industry until I ultimately, um, it led me to purchasing a, uh, domestic brand and manufacturing a company, a vertical brand in, um, leather goods. And it, it was kind of along the way that I started to uncover things that I just didn't agree with. And it started with, you know, some of the things that I saw, um, overseas. And then I started to see some things that I saw here in the U.S., just as Tara said, uh, there were similarities, and often those similarities were about um, women, um, exploiting women, exploiting uh, people of color. And, and so as our company in Minnesota started to grow, I, I was having a terrible time finding um, uh, a skilled workforce to support us as we grew and I, I came to understand there was a really good reason for it, and the really good reason for it was that our industry had, had earned a really bad stigma. It had earned a really bad reputation, so why would anybody want to get into an industry um, that had the historical, um, let's just say, graveyard of bad behavior? Uh, and so rather than thinking about just training and how important training was going to be as we considered making more things in the United States again, I realized that the the issue was much, much, much bigger. And that we really needed to work out revaluing the people that make the product that we buy and wear. And that it it needed, it was gonna require a shift in how we cost in product, how uh, we serve brands, how we serve retailers, and how there was plenty of room for change that would benefit everybody. And so you flash forward. Um, and now we add the, you know, the planetary sustainability piece. And all of a sudden, everyone's realizing, and Nayan Carr knew this a long time ago, and I saw um pieces of this a long time ago, that it's all connected. So, you know, if you want to work on sustainable textiles and and reducing um the carbon footprint of, of how we produce and move, distribute and sell um apparel, um, that it can't be disconnected from unsustainable lives. So, you know, I might have the most brilliant way of, uh, developing a sustainable textile that is, you know, even if it hits a landfill, isn't going to do damage, but if it's still reliant on unsustainable lives then it's not sustainable, and so as we developed Isaac, um, our purpose was to, on behalf of industry, but also in, in, in in a, a way that would also challenge an industry is to have an institute that could convene all these solutions and test them and trial them on real product for real brands, using real people in the United States to ensure that the solutions would work for everyone. So that um, you know, maybe a solution that looked good in one way really had a negative impact in another. So what our institute does is we convene solution providers in a real usage case facility. And we carefully trial that. We carefully see how those solutions can work together with an unbiased eye. And what we find is that there's a lot of room to pay American workforce much, much better um, now that we have technology at Bring the Bear to do pieces of the work um, that no longer have to be done, which are low-skill, um, low wages. So now we can reallocate those resources to higher wages. The other piece of this that is so critical that we subscribe to here is that historically, the largely female sewing operators have never been reinvested in to excel in in that industry. So in other words, have a path to become the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. They've been expected to learn how to sew, not, not be interested in anything else. And it just so happens that the future is more on demand manufacturing, which requires more diverse skill sets. So, here at Isaac, we, we teach both traditional skill sets, but those same people are learning advanced skill sets. Rather than being left behind, they should be the first one considered to be the masters of new technologies. So, that's a long way of saying my whole career has led to this point, which has um, resulted in my belief that it takes a whole industry overhaul and people actually have to be put at the front end of solving a bringing solutions table, not an afterthought. And I think that's why Naya and and I, when we met, where we had a deep connection and understanding how these things need to be simultaneously developed, not in silos.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, Jennifer, you really made a good point on how people, especially consumers and even like, ex- well, executives who um, make decisions value the work of the manufacturers or the sewers or the seamstresses, it's Because, I mean, that is why a lot of the U.S. is no longer a major manufacturing uh, industry because it was seen as low weed work. But for a time, especially growing up, people that grew up along the Rust Belt, you know the factory workers had you know secure pension they had security which was what a lot of people wanted and now that's been lost so that that's where the value kind of left because it's like well why would i want to be treated or work in these conditions and i don't have the security financial security for my family um but i what your incubator space what i really like what you're saying is that you're putting that value back in and you're making it even more i guess like fungible because. You're giving them new skills and new, um, shared knowledge, which was, you know, usually a plateau, um, in that space. And it's something I see a lot in sustainable, I guess, incubator spaces around the world where people are working with people that have skills for another or traditional set. Like if you're, uh, electrician, they're learning, um, skills that could work with a wind turbine or renewable energy. So you're kind of applying that just in the fashion industry and in the um, labor sector. So it's, I really, that's great job. Couldn't see you.
0: Uh, Gabby, you know, that's such a great point about people no longer wanting to work in the industry because in the past, workers had unions, right, to protect them and ensure livable wages. But that seems to have fallen to the wayside. I want to comment on something that Jennifer said about sustainability that really resonated with me. We can't just look at sustainability for the planet. It has to be all-inclusive. We need to create integrated value chains that prioritize not only decarbonization and biodiversity, but also people's lives. We need to ensure livable wages and social justice so The work that's happening at Isaac in Detroit is incredibly important. And speaking of people and their livelihoods, I want to go back to Niantara because something Los Angeles is dealing with is the 2040 Downtown Rezoning Plan, which has the potential to displace thousands of garment workers, putting them out of work and business. So Niantara, can you talk to us about what is happening there and what do you see?
2: Yeah, I'd love to, Um, you know, so the garment industry in Los Angeles has uh, had a home in the fashion district, right in the heart of downtown for over 130 years. Um, And garment manufacturing has, you know, gone up and down, there was a really strong workforce. And of course, that workforce is primarily immigrant women, right, and continues to be They also have a strong history of organizing. Um, But as union density has been sort of like, chipped away at, um, you know, over the last several decades, especially across America. We've seen that union density, of course, um, uh, weaken in Los Angeles as well. Garment Worker Center, we use the worker center model to do a lot of the things that unions, um, you know, provide in terms of support and base building with members. We do know your rights trainings. Um, We have a liberatory services department, which includes a legal clinic, member support, helping folks connect with things, and then our policy advocacy. And um, we learned about this plan called the DTLA 2040 plan. Um, Late in the summer of 2021, right as we were Um, in the last throes of our legislative campaign to pass um, SB 62, the Garment Worker Protection Act in California. And um, we learned that this plan had been in development for, um, at that point, almost seven years. And GWC, an org that had a 20-year history in downtown, 20-year-plus now, was not notified. Um, We were a key stakeholder in this industry. But unfortunately, the planning department and the processes that are in place within the city Don't look at things from a a racial impact lens, um, or had not certainly at that point. Um, And we're not doing conducting proper outreach to reach communities that would be impacted, including garment workers and small business owners. And so, as soon as we learned about it, we mobilized. You know, we were able to put together a coalition, including um, businesses and fashion organizations, to come again and to amplify worker voices to um, emphasize the need to protect preserve to preserve, protect, and incentivize these garment jobs in downtown, because this is really an ecosystem here, right? So, um now what we learned initially with this plan is that there were areas of the fashion district where garment manufacturing was going to be prohibited entirely., um, so really shrinking the area where garment manufacturing could happen. And then understanding that, um, you know, just like gentrification has impacts on residential areas, you know, this um, kind of development that the city was um, paving the way for with this new plan would displace a lot of garment industry because it would re- prioritize mixed use developments, um, you know, big box commercial developments, and particularly luxury and market rate housing um, and change the zoning in such a way that garment manufacturing and light industrial uses would not be preserved in these areas. Um, So we, in uh, the first year, I will say we've had some successes in the draft plan update. Um, We were able to make sure that garment manufacturing is included and everywhere in the fashion district where it's currently happening. So that's already one win we have. Um, We've also been able to, through our advocacy with the planning department um, and different city council members, Um, We've been able to make sure that there are also some other protections, for example, prohibiting um, conversion of manufacturing space into other uses in some areas of the fashion district where it's really core to the ecosystem. And because what we understand is if you have a building that's currently 10 stories of garment manufacturing and that gets gutted and turned into live-work lofts or something, that's a loss of of you know, dozens, if not hundreds of jobs. Um, but it also impacts all of the other businesses that work with those businesses that were in that building, right? Because so many of the businesses that were our members are employed and a lot of the businesses that are utilized by the responsible and ethical business community that is really growing in Los Angeles, you know, they'll have their pattern maker on one block or one floor. They have their sample maker on another floor. They have their small cut and sew, their sample room. You know, all of that is happening um, kind of, you wouldn't believe, you know. You really wouldn't believe. It's like lifting up a a, a rock and the, or a log in the woods, and you see all the worms and all the little creatures, right? There's so much happening there, and it, and um. So we've been able to make sure that there are some protections, but there's still more to do. And this process has been opaque. You know, land use is not something I will say that I was familiar with. I've spent also the last like two years educating myself on this so that I can support our members to be leaders in this campaign. And um, um, so there's like the, the information itself, there's the processes, there's just like a lot that we're up against. And it's it's really important for us as an organization that we're also like learning from this and thinking about like how do we align with other um communities or other advocates for particularly for affordable housing, making sure that we are not pitting manufacturing against jobs. We know that our communities need both of those things in order to survive and to thrive, right? Um, But then also to think about what are other processes that the city is going to be, you know, like moving forward with their plans where our community would be excluded? Um, And so how can we kind of get ahead of that and increase our capacity to engage and really like inform any of these changes, especially as they relate to urban manufacturing? Um, So um, you know, I will hopefully be able to share some resources um, with you all, or you can connect to those later, but we are reaching a critical moment. So um, if you're listening to this around this time that the this is released, um, hopefully there will be some actions you can take, and otherwise we'll hopefully have some good news to report back on in the future on on our success. But I will say we've already had some success, we just have further to do. I'll briefly add that we're also including this opportunity to get in front of city council to really push for the city to come in to support garment manufacturing in this city because it is a part of the second largest creative economy in Los Angeles. Um, as the fashion industry. It's very connected to entertainment and Hollywood. It's also manufacturing. You know, we have um, a really good um, network of distribution centers. We're so close to the ports, we're so close to the distribution networks that go out towards consumers. So it's a vision that we're putting forward when we're talking to these council members and our electeds that is worker-centered, but really about the future. Of the garment industry, we're not trying to preserve a sweatshop industry. We're trying to build off of the successes we've had with, for example, passing statewide legislation, and um, also our um, campaign to pass the Fabric Act at a federal level to get build in some local infrastructure support that helps to make sure that there's workforce development, making um, the industry attractive to new and uh, new ethical businesses that want to produce here. Um, and the city providing incentives for them to do so, so that we can attract, um, you know, a workforce and strengthen the workforce that is here, making like, you know, like Jennifer was saying, like showing that this is work that can be um, well paid, that can provide benefits, that can be sustainable. Um, And I also just think when we're talking about sustainability, I think it's so great that we're, we're able to at GWC kind of, build in that worker-centered vision because when I'm thinking about things like upcycling and recycling and, you know, circularity, who is better equipped to do that than a, a community of garment workers who are already very well-versed in what it means? It, they they know the processes, they know the materials, but they also in their own lives have had to learn different ways to make things work, to make things lives uh, life cycles last longer because of the the way they've been um, materially under-resourced by our system. So um, I think we are really excited to be doing that in L.A. and also to, to know that there are these things happening, for example, in Detroit and other parts of the country that we can collaborate and share um, and share learnings on as well.
1: You know, the crazy thing about the land use changes is that, you know, right now the sustainable fashion movement growing in the U.S., you know, find more people wanting to start their own brands with ethical practices that they can um, ex- access, and really like L.A.'s. You know, because it has an established garment industry is usually a spot where you find a lot of these brands settling. So it's kind of crazy that at the same time, while this industry is growing, the interest is growing, which really boosts the economy of L.A. Somebody has the idea to cut that down and it's kind of like okay well what impact do you think that's going to have um not even like just logically you know like what what's the logical thinking of this from the long term of the economy of la or california so it's crazy to think about that it really shows you how siloed um you know government businesses and the industry is from each other to not see the potential in each other um has uh, like you said, a lot of brands rely on different layers of the indus- of the businesses that are just in these spaces. Have they been helpful in this movement and getting uh, things kind of uh, set straight? Or is it just kind of on the garment workers? This has been a really
2: wonderful um, opportunity for us to build. So when we worked on SB62, we, we had um, 157 industry endorsers for that legislative campaign, which just shows the appetite, right, from industry for worker-led legislation and things that help to really support and incentivize responsible business. Um, And we have that, we were able to tap into that and even grow and do further outreach um, and reach more business owners in LA. And so when we, for example, have meetings with council members, they are worker-led. So we have our members um, draft the agenda and kind of um, bring up the main talking points and make the questions, the direct questions of council members about whether or not they're going to support us. But we also have businesses participate in those meetings. Um, and that has been really powerful for our members to see that shift because they're really used to a sweatshop industry where, you know, the employer is the the bad guy, right? And um, but because of our analysis over the last few years, understanding that it's actually you know, really global brands at the top of the supply chain that are setting the terms that then implicate all supply chain partners across across the world in upholding this system that undervalues labor and undervalues the resources, right? Um, This is a switch that they're able to now also kind of participate in and seeing that there are business owners that are trying to do things the right way, but they need a level playing field and they need support. Um, And so they're in these meetings as well. Um, and I think for everyone, it's been a really exciting moment because we're seeing this kind of collaboration where it's often not been there in an industry that has been built around competition, you know? Um, yeah. so I feel that's a cultural shift that we're also getting to experience altogether,
0: yeah, definitely. it's 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 really powerful to see this movement of worker organizations brands and state legislators collaborating to change conditions and take accountability all along the supply chain. Um, You know, I was wondering if you are seeing any negative implications of SB 62. Have the tighter regulations resulted in companies either going out of business themselves or maybe contracting with manufacturers outside of California, resulting in the loss of garment worker jobs? And, you know, will it result in pushing the industry out, so to speak?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, honestly, with any regulation, there's going to be some shakeout. This is the environment that we operate in, right, and of uh, broadly capitalism. Um, industry will, um, those who want to continue to exploit or and profit from exploitation will seek other alternatives. And that is why... It's really important, especially for our membership, that we engaged in the Fabric Act campaign because uh, for us, you know, having those stronger protections for garment workers and the brand accountability that SB62 provides at the state level, having that extended throughout the country helps to support garment workers everywhere, but to help also kind of keep in the You know, the potential flight to say, like, you cannot now pit one city or region in America against one another because we're all working on the same standards. We're all agreeing that garment workers need to be paid a fair wage and that brands need to be accountable when there are um, violations of those rights because they are the ones that are setting the terms. Right. Um, So um, I think it's just going to be reflected in further um, you know, solidarity with our global partners as well, to just try to really hem in industry in such a way with regulation and policy because they won't do it themselves. We know this. You know, voluntary efforts from corporations often fall weak, and the impact they have on workers is is negligible in the long run. And so I think it's really important for us to to keep in mind that, yes, there will be some changes as a result of, any legislation but we're always doing all these you know we're not operating in silos we're continuing to address like what can we do to make sure that we're supporting the industry to be here and that's why the fabric act is also really important because it includes incentives for companies that are reshoring um, and um, we need to keep building on that right this is all like we're kind of opening some doors we're building relationships with people who have power um, and um, in in the more traditional sense of having power, right? And um, and we're putting this fashion conversation in front of them and really showing them that we have a vision that is going to be not only supportive of the workers and the environment, but the economy as well. And so I think it's a really strong vision that we're putting forward.
1: Yeah, it's a valuable sector. It's kind of sad that. We haven't recognized that now. Um, or our, you know, leaders haven't recognized that yet so now. Um, what's hard over to Detroit though? Let's see, like speaking of building, uh, Jennifer, can you tell us oh, well why Detroit and what's currently happening that's kind of uh, well, feeding. What's us? interesting about
3: Detroit is that on you know we have a pro and a colon here, and the pro is that um, we don't have a garment industry that's steeped in um, maybe outdated ways that have to be deconstructed before we can rebuild. So we kind of can build it as it could and should be. The downside of that is obviously we don't have the overall ecosystem that Los Angeles has that um, Nayakara was talking about. But there's some real benefits and freedoms that we have to look at things differently because of that. The other thing that I think is very interesting about Detroit, obviously, you know, we are a city that knows how to manufacture, we know logistics, we have an engineering um, community that's tremendous. And so what that does for us is we get to look at solutions outside of our industry a whole lot. And I think, you know, sometimes that's exactly what you need to do. And sometimes the best solutions come from outside the industry. The other piece that I think is fascinating, and it's actually a challenge, is that I believe that if we would have set up Isaac in, uh, Los Angeles first, we would have had a line out the door of people wanting to, to work at Isaac because of the facility that we built and um, the way we treat people, you know, full benefits. Um, we, we really have a, we, we are demonstrating, um, what a fashion manufacturing environment and company can look like in Detroit. Because there is, there's been such a large union presence, you know, the auto industry has a much, much higher hourly hourly wage than our industry traditionally does. So even though um, we pay far higher than the national average for our operators, it's still low by auto industry standards. So what that forces us to do is say, well, why couldn't it be that? Why couldn't it be 26 bucks an hour? So while the challenge is different and hard because it exists here, I think it's a good challenge. And I believe that if we set our sights on why couldn't these jobs be, you know, 25, 26 for a skill that if you put anybody in front of a machine that doesn't know how to do this, they will say, wow, that's a real high skill because it is. So. <clears throat> I think that it also gives us the opportunity to show what happens when you set your sights on that first, um, that sometimes you aren't even being unions, because why are unions ever around on unions are around for a reason? They're there because corporations weren't treating people well. So we're saying to industry, you know, how about you start on the high road and, and aim really, really high and and bring to bear technologies and a whole new way of doing things that can help to activate that new, um, let's just say new formula, the new math, And so it it means that, you know, we're going to fail at some of that and succeed in some of it. but as an Institute, we get to push the boundaries. And I think Detroit is a really great place to push the boundaries.
1: Yeah, I think, and you know, that's a good point that you make where we kind of separate, um, clothing manufacturing from other, you know, any major manufacturing value wise, but since you're in a manufacturing uh area it's like you get to hold that same standard that they have where it's like well these are the laws that were already in place because you have this industry here why not apply it to this industry as well because it is manufacturing so that's um that's a really good um strategy to approach a way to approach this what's the vision well it's interesting one of the things we've
3: worked very closely with toyota production systems on you know um the the history of that, you know, Kaizen. Well, why did, why was Toyota able to continue to have manufacturing facilities in the United States? Because they brought to bear new methodologies, new processes, new equipment, a whole new way to look at worker engagement. And it worked for them, it worked. So now we're working with them to apply those principles to our industry. Why wouldn't they work for our industry? And we've seen significant increases in our efficiencies that don't make the work the workers work harder. It makes their job easier actually. And so you know to look outside and look, look, you know, stop looking in the mirror and bring to bear some things outside of our industry can really really work. Now the challenge we have we have a low margin industry, um, because we have addicted our consumer to fast, cheap fashion that doesn't mean anything to us. So that we're willing to buy stuff that we wear one or two times. And, and so we can't compete with that. So there's a whole other consumer side of this that has to be addressed at the same time, because we can't have that, that we can't have this change without some change in margins. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do a lot of educating too, with our, our brands and we're in a lot of high level conversations about thought leadership and okay, you know, if. If a retailer, as we know, is throwing away you know 30 percent of its product before the consumer gets it, it's not selling, it goes into landfill. Another 30 percent is' sold at deep discounts, and only 30 percent is sold at full price. Well, if we can set up a new way to manufacture where it's closer to on-demand, so you can postpone buying everything. So let's just say you buy 30 percent of what you know you're going to sell. And the rest of it, you do more on demand. Links of all those financial resources that can be reallocated to higher labor. And they don't lose their margins because all that, all those resources that are going in the trash, those can be reallocated. So I think there's a, a piece of this where, where the buyers have to relook at their total cost of ownership. And they'll quickly see that you can pay people higher wages. You can teach people well. Um, you can um provide them upward mobility, but they have to be willing to look at margin structure if we can reduce their inventory burden in the waste. Mm-hmm. And that's where technology comes in. So that's why I say all these things have to happen at once. And that's why I think an institute like Isaac has been long overdue because industry can't stop to research these solutions. They need an institute to work on these solutions that's working. That's both challenging them and advocating for them. And so that's why I, I just really believe that our model, I mean, right now, our big challenge is that we, the phones are ringing, the emails are popping up, want to work with us, want to work with us, but we're not seeing the support from industry yet that'll ensure our sustainability to work on their behalf. And that's what we need is for industry to really step up and understand that the work that they support here benefits them and the entire industry and ensures that people will be treated well so that we have a workforce. So um, so that is the big challenge right now. So there's a lot of things that have to happen at once, but I, I'm, I will say I'm more optimistic than I've been in my entire career um, because conversations like this are happening. Conversations like this weren't happening 10 years ago. And if you had these conversations in front of a retailer, they would treat you like you were that you were calling it from a hippie commune, you know, and, and, and that's not true anymore. So I see, I see that as being um, a good thing. So I'm, I'm optimistic, even though I know the work is still uh, very
1: much ahead of us. So, I mean, what does the the support exactly look like from industry or? uh... The support, like
3: the industry, just like any other initiative that they might support, Is that, you know, most industries have institutes that work on our behalf. We haven't had one. We're the only one of its kind in the United States. Mm -hmm. So instead of throwing money at, uh, you know, greenwashing or, uh, at things that aren't, they don't know are going to work. If collectively the industry would support an institute so that they're doing it all together. And they realize that, that what comes out of this benefits all and benefits the whole industry, it is a much better return on an investment for them. So that donation or that contributing partnership dollar has much more power if it's consolidated and combined with other resources from industry. Now we can support Nyang Tara's work. Her work begins to, to, to have support. We can support other agencies that are that are doing good work. But if you don't have an institute that's supported, that can be the workhorse on behalf of industry and people at the same time, Mm -hmm. um, you know, even an organization like ours will fail. And so the industry has to put themselves, they have to understand where the value of their contributions should be spent instead of thinking that they can do it on their own.
1: Yeah, I I see. That brings back the competitive aspect of everyone's trying to say, oh, we figured it out in-house. And that's you're not going to be able to do that and maintain your business so it's like we have to come back together as a community to say yeah let's you know isaac has this space we can trial you know you could do one line or one collection in that space and trial some sort of circular model or whatever it is but put those resources there it saves it saves them resources you know because oh
3: So I'll give you a very very real live example. Uh, So Carhartt came to us and they hadn't made beanies in the United States for decades. And it's one of their number one selling items. Um, It took us two years, but you know what we did in those two years? We totally redefined how a beanie can be made in the United States. Um, We had some custom uh, equipment made. We installed... AI inspection in the line. We grab that technology from the auto industry. We retrained people. The people that are in that line are getting paid well, and we hope we'll get paid more as we continue to elevate that line. But what it does is, as an institute, we can certify and de-risk that line, showing that if you buy this equipment, you train this way, You can now be a supplier for Carhartt, a domestic supplier. Carhartt can be ensured that there will be standard quality they can rely on because a company's been certified to do it this way, knowing that people will get paid well to do it. So that has far, far reaching effects. So what we can do is we can expedite good solutions. We can speed adoption. And so, you know, and, and. Trust me, we've tried different solutions in that line that didn't work. And, but the solutions that are, the solutions providers were actually helping their product be a more viable solution for industry. Some were helping the adoption of their solution. So it's, it's a triangulation of um, a usage case environment that's good for everybody involved. It really is, it's so, it, you know, as I say to say a win-win, but it's a win-win-win-win. So it's the buyer it's a solution provider, and it's the people. But if you don't have an environment to root that in, there will be some intended consequences um, because you're not trialing it beforehand. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you know, this is a really interesting and insightful conversation. And for me, one of the things that sits at the center of it is cultural sustainability, and what garment manufacturing has done for community building. We are talking a lot about the skill building and transferring of knowledge and traditions, and Los Angeles has a 130-year history of garment manufacturing with harmful practices and is transitioning to a place of sustainability and worker advocacy while Detroit is going from Motor City to Fashion City. So I'm really curious about the cultural shifts you both are seeing in the workplace and community
2: um on a very, like deeply personal level, sort of like, you know, sometimes when we have our members um, get a job with one of our local ethical employer partners or one of the more responsible factories, um there's a it's really difficult for them to understand when they are actually like encouraged to take a little bit more time with something. They have internalized that um sort of that pressure to be super, super productive, to work 12 hours straight and not take breaks, to do, you know, all of these things that they've done for so long. So there's there's like a culture shift, sort it happens from deep within someone where they're starting to say, Oh, I can actually. Um, take, you know, a little bit more time to sew this thing. I can actually learn how to operate a new machine. You know, I can actually learn how to make a whole garment from start to finish instead of just the same seam over again. That's actually, I think that's a huge thing. And I think I hope we continue to kind of, or I hope we begin to study this and really think about the impact that this has. Because I know that just personally, when I was, began at GWC and leading those, um, creative classes in the Espacio Creativo, when we had that program, one of our members now, she's at the f- head of every picket line. She brings her family to every um, you know like action we have. But she was a trimmer when she first learned about the Garment Worker Center. She saw about these classes and her whole job was trimming threads of garments as they came off the assembly line. And she had never been given the opportunity to even operate a sewing machine. And in GWC and in that space and kind of learning now about the industry more, she was able to do all of these things and it helped her blossom into this leader at the organization. From lit- really someone who I remember being very shy and mousy. So I'm I'm thinking about that that really impact on workers. And I would love to hear Jennifer. Maybe you can kind of share more broadly about what you're thinking because I I agree with what you're doing is is also hugely impactful on the culture. Um, yeah. Well,
3: it's it's such an important point because whether it's garment manufacturing or any, let's say, outdated manufacturing where people don't have names, they, you know, uh, it's when you do give people the right to be more human in the workplace, um, there's a certain amount of PTSD you have to deal with. So when you say you want to hear from them, you would assume they'd want to speak up. Not so. So what we've had to do is really take the time to build trust. And uh, we have, you know, very young people that are just getting in the industry, and then we have people that have been in a long time. We have seen where we have empowered people to make even decisions in the line that maybe they wouldn't have been uh, empowered to do in the past because the Toyota production system was very much about right now I'm empowered to, to, to make a decision here. I'm empowered to continuously improve things. It is, you have to get rid of what Nayantara was talking about, this energetic behavior that has been... Pounded into them where it's not okay to do that. So you really, I I really do think it's almost like PTSD. And so you have to approach it very respectfully, slowly, and not expect just because you give someone empowerment and give them voice, that they know what to do with it. And so um, I did not expect that to be so hard, quite honestly. And uh, even for myself, I've known and realized that even in my position, because I'm a CEO, sometimes maybe I'm not the one to offer them to scoop up. Maybe it's somebody else because maybe they're not quite there to believe that they can say it to a CEO. Some people are willing and sometimes, you know, they'll take advantage of it and they're the ones always at my desk, but not always. So it's to really meet them where they are and give them on ramps to sort of feel their way to a new reality. It's it's a very interesting dynamic at work.
1: Actually, that's a good point that you bring up, Niantara, where L.A. is kind of going through an evolution where, and it's really good that it's happening because it's showing how you can change an existing system and how you're supposed to deal with every aspect of it. And, and that's the human piece, the mental health, where manufacturing has a history of really bad mental health problems stemming from it. So what you're doing is really setting a standard of how people can transition their um, supply chain. And then what's happening in Detroit is going into the nitty gritty of like, how to experiment with new technology, how to grow the supply chain, how to how to have it evolved even beyond just manufacturing and fashion, you know, like to become an ongoing industry, an economy of its own in a way. But um, it is like, we are watching the same thing happening in both these areas. Um just in such a complex situation that you guys are tackling it in all these areas that people will usually ignore when it comes to tradition.
0: Definitely. Well, Nayantara and Jennifer, thank you both so much for being here today and giving us your time and your insights. It was an incredible conversation and very important one at that. And Gabby, thank you so much for being a co-host with me today, I had a lot of fun. So thank you all very much for sharing community and space today, it was a really great conversation.
3: Thanks to you both and Nye and her. it's wonderful to see you again. I I hope uh, it's not too long before we connect again. Absolutely. Our paths will
2: cross again soon, I'm yes. sure. And Good. thank you yes. so much um, for having me. Um, and I would just drop, if I may, if folks want to learn more about the Garment Worker Center, they can visit our website at garmentworkercenter.org. And to learn more about our uh, current rezoning campaign, they can also visit um,
3: protectdetailagarmentjobs.org. And I will also pitch Isaac, if you just go to isaic.org, you can find out a lot about our programming and uh, there's an opportunity to donate towards uh, our work as well.